Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. We have a great lineup of questions today on Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We'll talk about speeding tickets, old wills, co-signing on a loan, auto accidents, trademarks for businesses, selling real estate when someone dies, and taking care of minor children. So let's get started. We have a question from Trey. He says, I was recently pulled over and given a speeding ticket alleging I was traveling 90 miles per hour in a 70 zone. The only thing is I had my cruise control set for 84. What can I do? Well, Trey, no one likes to receive a ticket, particularly one for traveling 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. If you enter a guilty plea or if you're found guilty, this ticket will carry with it numerous points on your license. If you accumulate too many points in a 24-month period, your license can be suspended. But there are likely other significant consequences also. In addition to the points on your license in many jurisdictions, the fine the judge will impose typically increases in some correlation as the number of miles per hour increases over the posted speed limit. So this offense may carry an extensive fine. As you may be aware, for an offense like the one you've described, Trey, if you are found guilty or plead guilty, in addition to the fine imposed by the judge locally, you'll be required to pay a super speeder fine of an additional $200. If this fine is not paid directly to the state within 120 days, your license will be suspended. So there are some significant consequences related to a conviction for a charge that you're facing. Well, of course, here at LegalWise with Ted Eccles, we encourage drivers to comply with this posted speed limit and set your cruise control accordingly. But we also recognize that mistakes sometimes happen. It's never a bad idea to seek out legal advice when facing charges that result in significant consequences. A local attorney may be able to assist you in navigating the issues and personalities in the courtroom. Usually, a defense attorney will talk with the prosecutor to review relevant facts, like the issue you've raised with the defective equipment. The attorneys will discuss the prosecutor's case and see if the prosecuting attorney will consider making some adjustment, either to the charges or the recommended fines, based on extenuating circumstances, particularly if the attorney can show proof that an equipment defect has been documented and corrected prior to appearing in court. So drive safely out there, Trey. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We have a question from Sharon. 
She says, my mom and dad made wills when my sister and I were very young. While we are now adults with kids of our own, my parents still have not updated their documents. Are their wills still valid if something were to happen to them? Well, great question, Sharon. Your parents' failure to update their documents is very common. Many couples allow other priorities to crowd out the benefits of bringing their estate planning documents up to date. First, you've asked the most important question, are these documents valid? Without looking at them, it's not possible to answer that question for sure, but it is generally accepted that the mere passage of time does not make wills that are otherwise valid invalid. However, there are a few things that can make the probate of an old will much more expensive. When probating older wills, it's often necessary to track down the witnesses to that will and ask them to sign a document, called an interrogatory, certifying that the purported will is in fact the will that they witnessed. This process can be very difficult and expensive because the witnesses have likely moved, retired, or maybe even passed away. Another reason to consider updating a will is that the disposition of property contained in the old will may be outdated and inaccurate. Many times the property described in the will is no longer owned, or the beneficiaries are not living, or even the distribution pattern is no longer acceptable to the owner. So making a new will can help to ensure that the person's current interests are reflected in the document. Finally, it's important that the executor named in the will, that's the manager of the estate, and the alternate are currently able to serve and are willing to serve. With older wills, we often see that the named persons are no longer living or able to serve. So Sharon, while those old wills may be technically valid, they most likely will be very expensive to probate and may contain a disposition of property that, that does not reflect your parents' current wishes. This is a tragedy because the whole point of a will is to give a property owner the ability to direct the disposition of his or her property in a way that reflects their wishes. So encourage your parents, Sharon, to seek out an experienced attorney so that they can have that outdated will updated and new wills drafted that reflect their interests and desires. Thanks for the question, Sharon. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. Raphael has a question. He says, my niece has called and said that she needs my help in buying a house. She said she doesn't need to borrow any money from me, but she's asking that I co-sign the promissory note with her to enable her to get the loan. What should I do? Well, Raphael, I know how tempting it can be to try to help out a family member, especially if you're not being asked to hand over any cash to them directly. However, you should really use caution when proceeding with being a co-signer on a loan with another person even if they're a loved family member. First, it's important to note that the reason your niece is unable to obtain a loan without your assistance is because the lender does not believe they are a good risk. Banks have lending requirements in order to make sure that they're not lending money to someone who can't afford to make the monthly payments. 
In this case, the bank has determined that your niece lacks the financial ability to borrow the money needed to purchase the house, and there is significant chance that she will not be able to pay the loan back. That brings us back to the bank's reason for requiring an additional person be added to the loan. If your niece were to stop making payments, the bank has a choice. They can foreclose and determine if there is sufficient value in the real estate at the time of the foreclosure to completely pay back the loan. Or they can skip the foreclosure and simply sue you and your niece to obtain a judgment against you and her for the entire unpaid balance. As you can see, you are at a significant disadvantage because you're not the owner of the real estate. You're simply an obligor on the loan. So while you have no benefits related to the loan, you have this obligation to make sure it gets paid back. Another problem with co-signing is that you have no way to make your niece use her resources to pay towards the loan. And finally, even if your niece promises you that she'll refinance that loan within a year or two and make sure that she doesn't require that you co-sign on the new loan, there's no guarantee she may decide to forego that option if interest rates rise or her credit score remains low, and then you'll be stuck with the potential obligation for the entire life of the loan, which could be 30 years. You know, a significant detriment to you is that co-signing a loan will result in the loan appearing on your credit, and it could prevent you from being able to get a loan in the future. So, Raphael, you definitely want to exercise extreme caution when thinking about co-signing on a loan with someone else. In fact, there are so many other ways that you could help out your niece without co-signing. You may want to explore these options with an attorney so that you can stay off that loan. Thanks for the question, Raphael. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. We have a question from Rocky. He says, I have been driving a commercial truck for the past three years. A few weeks ago, while driving my truck, I was rolling to a stop as I approached an intersection and a car darted in front of me in the gap between me and the other car. Unfortunately, the driver claims that I hit the bumper of her car. She called the police and has filed a claim against my insurance. Unbelievably, the officer wrote me a ticket. What can I do? Well, this is a very frustrating situation, Rocky. Traffic accidents almost always involve the two main areas of our laws, both civil and criminal. With the criminal aspect, you're required to deal with that traffic citation. Unfortunately, most of the time, our insurance companies will not provide an attorney to defend in the prosecution of the case. However, if you enter a plea of guilty or simply pay the fine, that guilty plea can most likely be used as an admission in the civil case. In the civil area of the law, the victim in a car crash is typically able to collect for damages from the person causing the crash. Because of this potential civil liability, your automobile insurance policy will usually handle the claim made by the victim, and the insurance company will also provide you an attorney if you are sued relating to the damages supposedly caused by you. In thinking about a civil defense, 
Your insurance company may invest some time and money in researching the other driver's claim to determine if there is some evidence that could show her failure to comply with applicable traffic law. Many times, insured drivers are frustrated because their insurance company will pay a claim, even if the driver believes it's frivolous because it can be done less expensively than actually defending the claim. So Rocky, any information that you can provide to your insurance company, like a dash cam or other proof that no significant contact occurred between the two vehicles, or that she pulled in front of you, the more likely they will deny the claim. Continue to drive defensively, Rocky. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. Mary has a question. She asks, I just started an LLC for my haircutting business. Can I trademark the name? Well, that's a great question, Mary. Trademarks are crucial for protecting your investments in your business. You've poured valuable time and revenue into investing in the goodwill of your clientele. It's important to structure your business and business name in a way that it is protectable so that other companies do not free ride on that goodwill by using a similar or identical name. While any name can serve as a trademark, only certain names are given protection, and even fewer can be registered with the United States Patent and Trademark Office and obtain the most expansive protection. There are different categories in which your business name may fall. The most protectable names are ones that are either arbitrary or fanciful. For example, Dove describes a kind of bird, but it also describes a chocolate maker's company. With Dove the chocolate maker, the word Dove is being used arbitrarily to describe something other than the bird. Similarly, a fanciful mark involves a made-up word such as Kodak or Exxon because arbitrary and fanciful names do not tend to hint at what service or good is provided, they are given the most protection under the law. Suggestive marks are the next step down. These might include a name like Ocean Wave for water bottles, which is suggestive of water but doesn't directly say that word or what is sold. These types of marks are as descriptive as the average business should go with their name if they hope to register a trademark. A suggestive mark requires at least some kind of creative leap between the name and the product or service. A name like Metro Atlanta Hairstyling merely describes the location and service provided and is called a descriptive mark. These marks require additional steps and time restraints in order to be given protection and are generally a bad idea for a business hoping to register its trademark. Above all else, you should avoid naming your business something generic, which would be like naming your computer company, Computer. Generic marks are never registrable with the Patent and Trademark Office. It's important to avoid descriptive or generic business names. This is especially true if you hope to purchase signs, flyers, airtime on local media, or other investments broadcasting your name. Thanks for the question, Mary. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com.
have a question from Marcus. He says, My father recently passed away. During his life, he appointed me as his power of attorney. He also has a will that names me as his executor. I paid for his funeral. Can I go ahead and sell his house to get my money back? Well, Marcus, I am sorry for your loss. Your question highlights one of the most significant limitations with having a will-based estate plan. A power of attorney ends immediately upon the death of the person creating the power of attorney. Even if you have the authority to act for your father during his lifetime, Marcus, the day he passes away, that authority ends. So you will not have the ability to sell the house unless a court gives that authority to you. In Georgia, the probate court has the jurisdiction to deal with wills. Unfortunately, just because your father had a will that names you as the executor, you do not have the authority to exercise that power until the will is approved by the probate court and the court issues something called letters testamentary. Most people seek the assistance of an experienced attorney to petition the court regarding the will. It is a legal proceeding and usually proves quite frustrating for grieving loved ones who attempt to navigate the process on their own. Even after you've been appointed executor by the court, you will have to examine the will to make sure it gives you the authority to sell the property without first seeking the approval of the court. So Marcus, you likely don't have the authority to engage the services of a real estate agent or enter into a contract to sell the house until you're appointed executor by the court. Thanks for the question, Marcus. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. Bethany has a question. She says, over the last several months, I've been making candles at home and selling them to my friends and neighbors. Recently, I've started selling some of them online. Is it a good idea to create some sort of business entity for selling these candles? Well, Bethany, congratulations on the success of your startup business. Currently, and by default, your business venture is considered a sole proprietorship. That simply means that you're operating a business in your own name. There are numerous reasons to consider forming either an LLC or a corporation and use that entity as the operator of your business. First, forming one of these entities will provide some liability protection. As a sole proprietor, you are personally liable to creditors and anyone who is hurt or injured by your products. This liability can be extensive and exposes all of your personal assets to potential liability. Another benefit to forming a corporation or LLC is that it can provide some financial savings and preferred tax treatment. There are many deductions, exclusions, and savings available to businesses that are incorporated. In addition, by forming a separate entity, you can use some of your pre-tax proceeds from your business to purchase needed business-related items, thereby maximizing the money available to you as profit. You'll want to consult with an accountant to review the tax advantages associated with the types of entities available, and then consult with an attorney to review the legal documents necessary to form your new business entity. 
Bethany, business owners work too hard to pay unnecessary taxes or to leave your assets unnecessarily exposed to potential creditors and other liability issues. Now is a great time to take the next step and form that business entity to take your business to the next level. I wish you the best with your growing business. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. Recently, I was back in my office drafting a document and my staff said there was a mother and daughter in the office who wanted to talk with me. When I walked into the lobby, to my great surprise, it was a childhood friend, Melanie, and her mom, Miss Margie. How valuable it is to have lifelong relationships with families and to know that in a pinch you have someone you can call and know that they will be there. A few years ago, when my mom passed away, Miss Margie was there with me to pick out some flowers and arrange the ceremony. Miss Margie was there when I was born. If my mom needed to go to the doctor or run an errand, I was dropped off at Miss Margie's house and she would look after me. If I got hurt on her watch, my mom fully expected she would take care of it. Well, today, not only are relationships like this rare, the laws make it more difficult for someone besides a parent to be able to take care of a child. Because of privacy laws and other health care rules, an informal arrangement may not be sufficient to allow another person to communicate important medical decisions and manage our minor children. Thankfully, since 2018, Georgia law allows a parent the ability to create a legally enforceable power of attorney document, granting certain authority to another person to be able to provide assistance and care for our minor children if we are unable to do so. There are limitations and restrictions on this document, so you'll likely want to consult with an attorney to make sure that you are meeting all of the legal requirements. But having one of these documents will provide peace of mind that you have someone in place in case something happens to you. Without a document like this, a caregiver will likely be required to file a petition in the probate court to become a temporary guardian of a minor child. This can be expensive and time-consuming. The delay associated with a court filing may be impractical, depending on the urgency of the need. But a family is blessed if they have a trusted friend like Miss Margie, who, through thick and thin, is always there to help. Now we have to make sure we have the tools in place to authorize them to actually serve us. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. You've been listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The Information Comments and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. 
No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.